Hello and welcome to Ways Women Lead, the podcast where remarkable female leaders share their personal journeys and offer valuable guidance on advancing your career as a woman in leadership. Join host Anna Gramadska and her guests as they delve into various aspects of leadership, including diversity, equity, and inclusion. This podcast is brought to you by Six Group, a global executive search and leadership advisory firm. Sophia, welcome to Ways Women Lead. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Nice to see you again, Anna. So um, I will start with an introduction and maybe I will let you to introduce yourself to give us a little bit of context of, you know, the fantastic achievements and the interesting career journey you have had until now. My name is Sophie. I'm currently the lead for mergers and acquisitions and business development at Chart Industries, um, which is also includes Howden now, where I was where I was working before. I have spent most of my career as a consultant. Um, so on the kind of the other side of things. That started when I was still at university. So I studied economics at the University of Exeter. I did a year in industry where I spent that year working for a consultancy house in London called North Highland. I loved it. I got the taste for consultancy. I loved the project work, the teamwork, the diversity of the challenges and the projects that we were, the problems that we were sort of solving. Um, but I wanted to get more into the strategy side of things. So North Highland was definitely more implementation consultancy and I wanted to dip my toes in the strategy side. So I was actually working with a charity at the time called Upreach. They work with students um, from less privileged backgrounds. So they consider themselves a socioeconomic um, diversity charity. They had found me during my time at Exeter. I had flagged up as a, a student who had come from a less privileged background. So they provide you with sort of coaching, mentorship, um, CV guidance. And uh, in a catch up with, with them, they basically told me I had all the credentials to apply um, for a company like McKinsey which I hadn't really heard of before. And if I had heard of, just thought there was no chance of somebody like me getting in. Um, but they did give me the confidence to apply. Um, I applied and I was successful and was um, accepted onto the summer internship program with McKinsey and Company in London. So I did that summer internship that obviously went well because uh, I was then accepted as a full time into a full time position after I graduated. So I went to McKinsey for about three years after I graduated, just the general BA tenureships, a business analyst um, mm -hmm. tenureship. We work on a variety of projects with lots of different teams, developing your kind of what we, they call a BA toolkit, right? So your basic Excel, your basic PowerPoint, the ability to communicate with clients and stakeholders. Then I kind of pivoted and went on a secondment with a tech startup. So it's very common, actually, for after a couple of years at McKinsey, they encourage you to get out to either do an MBA or go and work out in industry um, to just kind of real test the real world, take a bit of a break. So um, I did that. I was chief of staff to the CEO for a year, which was awesome, but I was definitely felt ready to go back to McKinsey after that. And mm -hmm. that was the point which I started to specialize in mergers and acquisitions and then heavy industrials in, in particular with, within that practice. Um, so I did that for a few more years until um, Howden found me. Um, so Howden is a kind of highly industrialized machinery company who provide the kind of highly engineered machinery that moves or stores gas or liquid gas, right, for multiple industries. That's probably the easiest way of thinking about what they do. Um, but they found me um, and it was the industries that I worked in. So kind of heavy industrials. It was my practice. It was M&A. Um, to, to lead M&A for that business. And it was in Scotland, which I wanted to move, uh, which I was looking to move to because, because my wife is, is based up here. Mm -hmm. So everything pointed towards me saying yes. And I took on, on that opportunity. 
shortly after I took it on, Howden were acquired by Chart. So that's why I say I now work for Chart Industries M&A and Business Development. So uh-huh. that's that's a kind so of, that- yeah, kind of run through everything I've done so far. Fantastic. Uh, very diverse career journey. And um, so this brings me to my next question. Is, uh, what lessons you've learned uh, from this transition from consultancy going in-house uh, that you could maybe give some advice from to others? Yeah, I mean, it's a very common career path. Um, I think more common to come from consultancy into industry than the other way, although there are mm. you know, p- people who make that move as well. Although I think that that way would be would be much harder. Um, I think there's a number of skills that consultancy, but McKinsey in general, and I'm sure the same would be true of BCG and Bain, they kind of set you up very well for industry in a number of ways, because you are essentially given like a crash course in business over that two, the two years you're in that BA position, right? So everything from Excel analysis to the basics of, um, you know, financial analysis, P&Ls, uh, balance balance sheets, um, making PowerPoints, communicating effectively, whether it be through email or through PowerPoint or presenting, you learn all of those skills very, very quickly because you're mm. out in the end, right? So you kind of, it's a fail fast type culture, but you're very well protected because of the way a team is, is set up. So I think you kind of hit these milestones probably a little bit faster than you would do mm. in industry, which means when you do leave, you're kind of projected a bit f- further ahead in your career than you would be probably if you'd been in industry from, from the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very grateful for that. You know, I was able to get my head around the business quite quickly around their financials, around their problems. I'm able to kind of really focus on, on problems and approach that problem solving in quite a structured way. But I think what, what you don't get, right, is you don't get the background, you don't get the context. As a consultant, especially when you're working in the big three, you often come in and very quickly within four, five, six weeks, you're needing to make a recommendation to that client, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of time and capacity for you to understand the historics of that business, perhaps what they've tried before, what's failed, the certain dynamics, the people, the decision makers, you kind of put all of that to one side, right? Or you get... Mm -hmm you can but not at the same level whereas when you join a business you need to take time you have to take the time to understand that because ultimately Mm -hmm. you do the best piece of work but if people aren't bought in you haven't got sponsorship you haven't brought people along that journey with you nothing will change right Mm -hmm. so that that was a big a big lesson for me was probably over the overall theme is slow down and talk Mm -hmm. to people listen um Mm -hmm. don't assume that you know the answer straight away Mm -hmm is there's probably people who have been looking at this problem for a long time before you've arrived, right? So understand what you've tried before, understand the thoughts, opinions, the hypotheses that people who have that business knowledge have and pull all of that together um, mm-hmm. and slow down the pace, right? I think mm-hmm. as well, when you're in a McKinsey team, everyone is 100% dedicated to solving that problem in that five or six weeks. Not mm-hmm. the case when you're in business, right? This is often just one of multiple mm-hmm. priorities of everyone mm-hmm. who's in a project, Mm-hmm. So you need to give the patience to that, right? It takes a while to gather the data. It takes a while to get everyone together to discuss the insights. It takes a while to get resources dedicated to that project. So you've got somebody who's got the time to crunch the data or create the slides or do the analysis. Um, so you kind of, you need to have a bit of patience with that and not expect mm-hmm. to have immediate impact, right? So uh-huh. I think that that can be a big challenge. People coming from the fast paced world of McKinsey into industry is you feel like you're not delivering, right? And you mm-hmm, question mm-hmm. a little bit because it takes much longer. 
I think so. I think my advice to anyone who's doing a similar move is probably assume for the first three to four months, you're going to add no, no impact, right? No mm-hmm, added being mm-hmm. there, but really mm-hmm. that is for getting to know the business listening to people forming like the bigger picture right which will pay dividends later on and what advice would you give to um corporations to develop uh day talent and day leaders better you said you have a very fast start very good start as a consultant and i have seen that as well uh, as an executive search consultant that people coming from mckinsey tend to be to be able to adapt really well and really fast uh, to a new position within the corporation. They, they tend to be trained very well at transitioning into new roles and, and uh, delivering uh, consistently. Do you have any advice on the basis of your experience on how to better develop their teams, their talent, their leaders? I think it's all about so much is in their power, is, is in the hands of the manager, right? There's mm-hmm. so much there. And I think we'll touch on that later when we get into like benefits that encourage the attraction and the retention of a diverse workforce, right? I think mm-hmm. for a manager, it's essentially that making making time to understand your team, give them enough guidance on what they're working on, making sure you're delegating fairly and responsibly. So it's kind of within somebody's um, capabilities, but a slight stretch all the time, making sure they mm-hmm. get sponsorship, that mentorship development, they've got the support they need, they're clear on what's re- what's kind of expected of them. Um, mm-hmm. Regular feedback, right? I'm a big advocate of feedback every day on every project to everyone in both directions and I think that's something that McKinsey really kind of ingrained in me but I was a real advocate of it so I've tried to bring that to my work at Howden and and Chart as well and so Mm -hmm. I think think most of it does fall down to the manager but then the responsibility of the organization is in the training of managers to have those skills right Um, Mm -hmm. which I actually often a mistake that I saw in my consultancy years with the clients I worked with that was something that was often neglected right is just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everyone was given the same sort of blanket training managers mm-hmm. weren't given additional special management training right taking into account the added responsibility they had um, for their direct reports so yeah something McKinsey does very well something I'm trying to hold myself to account to now I've got a growing team um, at Howden and Chart. Okay, okay. So more focus on training managers on the soft skills, on the management skills in terms of how to develop uh, your teams, how to set the right goals, how to uh, monitor them, uh, how to monitor uh, their development and and, um, provide them the support that they need that they can can continuously stretch themselves and and deliver better and better results. I'll move on to your story uh, because it is a really interesting story in terms of uh, DEI. What's your DEI story? Why are you passionate about DEI? Yeah, well, I suppose this definitely is my story, right? So whilst my story actually does cover a number of topics within DEI, I'm also very aware that I'm ignorant to the other areas that my story doesn't cover, right? But I think with that kind of caveat and that in mind, it's probably the the first dimension of DEI that I encountered was this, the one of socioeconomic diversity, right? I think I went to the University of Exeter where the majority of students, especially the majority of students on the economics, the business um, programs were from more privileged backgrounds. It's just one of the universities that has a higher percentage of students Mm -hmm. from privileged backgrounds. Um, That was immediately challenging for me because I just had a very different perspective to the people on my course. Um, And I was needing to balance two, three part-time jobs alongside my degree whilst they were kind of all focused on their degree and or partying and just having a better time than me to be honest at university. Um, It was hard because when we started talking about the careers that we were interested in, the connections we had, um, 
in the business worlds that we were interested in entering, I just felt like immediate, like I was immediately on the back foot. I didn't have any connections. I didn't, I'd never heard of PwC, KPMG, McKinsey. I'd never heard of these companies before. I didn't mm -hmm. understand what consulting was. Um, there were no doors that could be opened for me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I'm incredibly grateful for the char charities such as Upreach, right? Who do kind of realize that that is a bit of a challenge. They kind of pick you up, give you that mentorship, look at your mm -hmm. CV, give you the confidence that you have all the credentials to go to these companies and you can get there successfully without kind of contacts and family relationships in in those fields. Mm -hmm. So I think that's when I first felt like I was disadvantaged because of my background. But then even once I got my foot in the door at McKinsey, it was still pretty tricky, right? Because again, I'm then surrounded by people who just come from different backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. So we, it was much harder, I think, to bond with them because I couldn't talk about the colleges I was part of at Oxbridge, mm -hmm. right? Um, I couldn't talk about um the kind of the, the big family trips the shooting trips the skiing trips the the golf trips you know the things that people bond about in business that was just pretty tricky and also how McKinsey staffing works is it's not a very simple okay this person has these skills and therefore they're the best match for this project it really is a bit of a popularity contest where mm -hmm. the partner or the engagement manager staffing a project will staff people that they know or have heard of or they've had they've heard good things about or they have relationships with so when you're starting out, it's really tricky because people don't yet have, a, you don't have a reputation in the business, right? So you're purely relying on first, you know, um, that their first view of you when you meet for a coffee, right, to discuss a potential project. Um, and again, I found a lot of my colleagues who were starting out at the same time as me, they had relationships from their colleges at the, the Oxford universities, right, as an example. Or there was a family contact network and somebody had put somebody in touch with mm -hmm. someone. Therefore, they kind of wrapped their arms around them, got them staffed and got that accelerated. Whereas for me, it kind of felt like I was quite alone in that mm -hmm. and just had to really put myself out there and take what I could and just graft, right, for a little bit mm -hmm. longer. Yeah, so that so that was that was tricky. So yeah, I'd say socioeconomic diversity was my first kind of. This is why I'm interested in TNI, mm -hmm. uh, and then the kind of being a the, the gender representation came much later. Um, once I was actually staffed on projects, and I realised that I was quite often, especially because I worked in heavy industrials, I was quite often the only woman in the room, senior or junior. I was quite often given the tasks such as getting the coffee, taking the notes, picking mm -hmm. the team lunch, doing the admin. I think at one point I actually, and I'll never forget this moment, but a male colleague mm -hmm. actually made a comment that I would make a kick-ass um, personal assistant. And uh -huh, uh -huh. Not, there's nothing against personal assistants. It's just not the job I was doing. I was doing the same job as him. And I just remember how that made me feel because I was like, I'm not putting my hand up to do any of these things, but I'm being asked to do them and I'm doing them mm -hmm. well. I'm diligent. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, I once got feedback that my pitch was too high and to try and lower my pitch because it was mm -hmm. sometimes painful to listen to me mm -hmm. like I that feedback um oh. if I were I would off, was often the only the sometimes the youngest but the only kind of girl in the room and say there's like four seats at the table with the client those seats would be given to my male colleagues who were at the same mm -hmm. level as me before they were given to me and I'd always be the person kind of sat in the corner or sat at the back of the room for a long time mm -hmm. um, so that was that was quite quite challenging as well um, it sounds really challenging. Do you have an advice? I mean, there's it's a lot of consecutive years, right? And you've been progressing through roles of increased responsibility, and it's a journey through university, then through McKinsey, then uh, all the way up to your current position. So, if you can distill it down, I don't know, to one, two, three advice or, or one, three, three takeaways from you, 
from 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 that experience it sounds challenging yeah it is it is and it's it's mostly a confidence challenge mm. right i think mm. but i think with that in mind it's you know number number one is because it's it's easy to say to people just have the confidence believe in yourself get over that mm. imposter syndrome it's not that easy right so i think practical advice is to just like network 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 it will feel mm. uncomfortable it will feel forced do it like mm -hmm. get get to know partners work out the proposals partners are working on the pro side side desk projects they're working on offer to help get to know the partners the ap's the um so in in that's mckinsey language for essentially the most senior people in the business just really put yourself out there go to those um out of hours events um so people recognize your name because that actually mm -hmm. goes a lot a lot further than you think right because a partner will at mckinsey anyway a partner will get a list of a name at list of business analysts if you're the only name on that list that they actually recognize whether it be just from talking to you at an event you're mm -hmm. gonna have an immediate leg up right because you're mm -hmm, gonna mm -hmm. for them right so mm -hmm, put yourself out there do the extracurricular be helpful and just hope just kind of i suppose mm -hmm. believe that 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 work will then come back around because it did for me um that's mm -hmm. probably num number one um mm -hmm. number two is actually often people say when you are kind of asked to, to get the coffees to get the lunch I think there's this growing movement around resisting that but for me I was like look I just I want to be helpful to my team and whatever mm -hmm. form I bring and whilst I hope it gets to the point where I bring so much value through my actual work that this I could say no to picking up the coffees mm -hmm. my first couple of years I just did whatever was helpful right mm -hmm. and that then meant that I was never going to get feedback from the team that I wasn't, you know, a team worker, right? That I didn't mm -hmm. want the team. And that was completely within my control, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes I made mistakes in Excel. Sometimes my PowerPoint weren't perfectly aligned, right? That was slightly outside of my control because I was learning. But what was inside mm -hmm. my control was my mindset, my work ethic. So I made mm -hmm. sure that that was perfect. Kind mm -hmm, of. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one is is feedback, I guess, right? It's um, constantly ask for feedback. So you are making sure you're learning um, but also give feedback to your managers because the time, the example I gave of when my manager told me my pitch was too high um, or when I was kind of left out from my male colleagues at sitting up at the table with the client and put at the back, I raised that quite honestly mm -hmm. and forwardly with my managers at that time to kind of, because I, I think that builds a, a mutual respect, right? To say, mm -hmm. this is what you did, whether or not it's what you intended, this is how it made mm -hmm. me feel. Um, and it just opens up that honest dialogue. And I think that whilst that's been uncomfortable, um, it has kind of helped me along the way as well. Mm -hmm. It's so important, isn't it? Because, uh, well, unfortunately, behavior changes will not happen overnight. And just because someone was flagged something one time, that doesn't mean that, you know, these ingrained behaviors will change and, and implicit bias by default is implicit. Um, so it's really, really important to keep giving that feedback. So everyone can continue to educate and develop their own uh, responses and, and, and management that will be more inclusive by default. Companies are at a loss, right? When they create such an environment that puts so many more hurdles to diverse talent that could bring so much more to the table in terms of ideas, but they are the voices aren't being heard or, or they have to work twice as much to get to the same uh level where where others have gotten uh you know before it's it's the one that is losing is the organization in the end so they really have to do something i think much faster so it's this environment isn't um you know isn't there anymore so everyone 
has those equal chances. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, one thing that McKinsey does really well, right, is their talent reviews. There is so many protectionist barriers in place to avoid any kind of unconscious bias or preferential treatment, right? So actually, well, sometimes the staffing process can unfairly favor people who have those contacts. Actually, I would say the performance management review doesn't Mm -hmm. do right because it's essentially you have to collect multiple feedback from people you've worked with. You're then sat in a room full of all the partners who are kind of passive. They're called DGLs, but they're the kind of the assessor. They'll have a group of BAs that they assess, mm-hmm. but not BAs they've actually worked with themselves. So their their job mm-hmm. is to speak to everyone else they've worked with, pull together a um, third party kind of case um, on this person. What have they done well? What what have they not done well? Then they all come back together and discuss, say, fifty business analysts with the same tenure together, and there's mm-hmm. this ranking based on that that review process, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll debate that, and there's a number of HR. Um, professionals in the room who are trained on spotting and recognizing biased language um, and really pushing partners for for examples Um, Mm -hmm. and that's where they make a statement against somebody Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's done really well right and then that kind Mm -hmm. of protects people and I think really looked after me when I was there uh huh. Fantastic. That's that's really good to hear. So so part of that um, performance review panel are people who actually haven't worked uh, with the analysts that are being reviewed for promotions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is what you're saying. Uh huh. Uh huh. So the partner that was responsible for pulling together my mm-hmm. review is not a partner I've ever personally worked with. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, you have i suppose but most of the time it's even if you have worked with them it's only been like 10 percent of your year that right. you've them because you work with multiple partners and their job is to speak to all of their colleagues and pull together a kind of 360 review a good representation of how mm-hmm. you perform throughout the year and and that's such a simple technique in a way to avoid implicit bias just make the decision makers uh the people who will who will not have known you personally or who have not worked with you for so long closely uh, you know add additional people for for who will question you know the opinions that someone who knows you very well will uh will make uh, just so you can cross check yourself am i am i being objective am i am i being subjective and just to make sure that only what you've done is being assessed rather than rather than rather than any uh, you know uh, biases coming uh, influencing this decision yeah ex- exactly right because if a partner that I just had a good relationship with was to say I think Sophie's performing way above her tenure and therefore should be considered for um, you know rapid progression to the next stage at this next cycle is that the committee would then say okay that's great but I think we basically have a room full of people performing above their tenure here because that's mm-hmm. the people hire so can you give me specific evidence based on what you've heard about the other analysts we're discussing in the room can you give me specific evidence about what sophie's done that goes above and beyond what everyone else has done right to help mm-hmm. me right the people mm-hmm. challenge those kind of statements which um i'm a big big advocate of mm-hmm. okay so everyone is also very well trained on on how to ask questions that they are evidence-based questions and the answers are evidence-based rather than statements that are influenced by bias uh, so I've kind of interrupted you uh, when you were uh, talking about your DEI story. Um, eventually you joined uh, Howden and that was an interesting, uh, I think, case of how you joined them uh, and, and demonstrating their focus and, and the good practices they they have to support DEI. Uh, so I'll tell you to to follow up uh, on this. Yeah, so yeah, it was. it's an interesting one because I think when you talk about the practices for hiring and retaining diverse candidates, um, the issue of quotas is 
is a bit um no, nobody's nobody's in agreement right on whether mm. quotas are beneficial or actually create more problems and ultimately lead to you maybe not hiring the right people right um but how actually had implemented a a kind of I'd call it a soft quota but it essentially for every role where they were going um outside or looking inside for a candidate they had to at the final round they had to speak to at least one woman and at least one man there mm -hmm. had to be a representation of both at that final round interview now when Howden had gone out looking um for my role so for somebody to lead M&A and, and business development across the company they had only had um they'd only had male applicants which is really mm -hmm. interesting um and I think there's a lot, there's a, perhaps a lot of reasons for that. The fact that M&A is still predominantly male, industrials is very predominantly male, um, and we're kind of, that change is happening much, much slower. But the head of HR had said to the head of strategy who was ready to make a hire, um, we're not making a hire until you have gone through a final interview of a female candidate, because I do not believe that there's no strong female candidates out there. Mm -hmm. We're obviously just not attracting them. Um, or they're not aware of us, or we're doing we're not doing something well enough. Mm -hmm. um, so my my boss, the head of strategy, went back to the recruiting firm that was helping and said, "Guys, this isn't good enough. We need more female candidates." So they went back out um, and they they found me on LinkedIn. They did a reach out and turned out it was a really effective reach out. Um, mm -hmm. So they came to me, gave me the profile, said, "Let's let's just have a non-committal discussion um, and let and have you meet the team." And as soon as I met the team, I was like, "This is the job for me." I just knew it was such a good cultural. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. otherwise they would have hired a male candidate right because for mm -hmm. some that job advert and that recruitment during the first round of whatever they did to find their candidates that they didn't find me right so yeah. it, they were pushed to go and do better uh they found me and ultimately um you know held and felt like I was the best person for the role that there was no mm -hmm. pressure on on my boss to hire me over the male candidate he was previously yeah because there was no nothing in the quota that that decided that he just felt like I was the better candidate so mm -hmm. say to me when I say this story or though does that not bother you because you you were a diversity hire like you weren't hired based on your merit and I'm like well, well no because I was hired based on my merit like they mm -hmm. found me because of a quota mm -hmm. they hired me because they felt like I was the best person for the role which I believe Precisely. I am. So, um yeah it was actually the first time I'd seen quotas in practice both benefiting me and actually I think working working quite well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, such a fantastic story because uh, the, the subject of quotas is so controversial and I'm thinking why is that? Um, we all know we need more diversity uh, across organizations because it benefits organizations in terms of better performance, better innovation, better results, etc. And we're not getting it. We haven't been getting it for years. And so in order to measure our progress, like with anything else, we need quotas, right? So it's not about giving someone an easy way in. It's about just measuring whether what we're doing is, is bringing the results that we want, which is finding diverse talent, as simple as that, right? So without the quota, as you said, they would just wouldn't have thought about looking maybe for within organizations that wouldn't be your usual suspect to just keep doing what you have been doing always you're not thinking outside of the box you're not forcing yourself to think if there are alternative um solutions so if you don't have that quota for example right so it's just a way to measure progress and and to force you to think about solutions that you're applying differently as simple as that and working for an executive search firm i know myself as well whenever our clients have asked us to 
to to make sure that our shortlists are diverse and and whenever they ended up hiring a, a female for example or, or another diversity candidate we knew for fact uh, through our assessments uh, that it, it was just more difficult for us to find that person but that person was hired because they were the best candidate as simple as that as you said there was there was another choice yeah i think that's it i think hi- finding and hiring diverse candidates is hard so naturally we're all we're all busy right it's bit across mm-hmm. multiple things so we would stray away from the hard right and towards the yeah. what we know and but unfortunately if we keep doing what we've always done then nothing's going to change so i mm-hmm. think quotas kind of just they kind of enforce that hard work right they mean mm-hmm. they mean have to do the hard work or the executive search firms you're working with have to do that hard work um mm-hmm. it often it often is is to your benefit and i don't know whether there's anything in this right but i think there's something to be said for there's less of the diverse candidates in the overall pool in which you're looking so they are harder to find but i think because it has been harder right it's like I suddenly feel in lots of areas I've had to work harder to get to the same level as my my male counterparts, right? Mm-hmm. Or my counterparts from more privileged backgrounds um, mm-hmm. or my non-LGBT counterparts, right? Like there's mm-hmm. been in times where I have been more uncomfortable. I've had to put myself out there more. I've had to work harder, right? And mm-hmm. I think it does come, come through um, once, you, once you get to interview. Mm-hmm. Precisely, precisely. So in terms of hiring, so we have, when it comes to diversity, we need to focus on, applying the right uh, attracting and and uh, hiring strategies assessment strategies when it comes to uh, hiring talent uh, what about retaining uh, so research uh, indicates that one fifth of companies offer only the benefits mandated by law and and benefits is i think just one piece of the puzzle to to create more diverse organizations but when it comes to benefits What's your thinking, having uh, worked uh, for various organizations um, and those that were particularly good as well at at retaining uh, diverse talent, what additional benefits uh, should companies provide to their employees to attract and retain diverse talent that you're not seeing many yet doing it? Doing? I think just doing the bare minimum just isn't good enough anymore, mm. to be honest. Um, I think we're seeing... All the all the big corporations and the medium ones, the small ones, I'm sure will will follow. Obviously, budgets are important, but are starting to innovate their diversity benefits or their just general benefits much much more than they've ever done before. And I think that's because the workplace is getting so much more competitive, and actually fire, finding that diverse talent is is difficult, right? So actually getting your benefits right. And then creating a culture that kind of keeps those people and makes them feel included and needed and wanted and good about themselves, right? That is so important. So I, I think on the benefits, um, some of the main things that I'm seeing and that I certainly looked for in, in my next company was f- flexible working, both in times of hours you work and where you're working from. I think COVID changed that for a lot of people, kind of showed them what work life can be like and it can be so much better balance where you're not in the office between specific hours where you can't get to a doctor's appointment you can't take a personal call you can't get to a dentist appointment for those with kids right you can't pick your kids up drop your kids off it creates all that stress whereas i think companies that offer the kind of there's this culture of trust there's you've got a good manager who knows what you're responsible for and knows whether you're delivering or not so quite honestly we don't care where you are (laughs) what you're Mm -hmm. doing where you're working from, the hours that you're working, as long as that work's getting done and your manager should have a good sense of where that work's getting done, we're kind of, we're happy with it. That I think is is a big 
a, a big benefit that a lot of people are looking for now, right? Just because of mm. added flexibility that it brings to your life, like being able to work out more, being able to spend more time with your kids, being able mm. to get to those medical appointments, right? It makes a big mm. difference. Um, I think then the kind of parental leave, right, is a big one that we're seeing a lot of companies become more um, generous with and being inclusive in that parental policy, right? So being very mindful of the language that you use and how that policy impacts people that are starting their families in perhaps slightly non-traditional ways, right? Mm -hmm. So same-sex parents, what is that policy for the birth, the birth parent versus the non-birth parent, right? Parents who adopt, right? What is mm -hmm. the policy for those adoption parents? Now, historically, there's been very little protection or benefit for the non-birth parent and for an adopting parent, right? But I think that it that is starting to change. Um, mm -hmm. Parental leave as well, right? Mm -hmm. Is assume that the birth parent, the the mother, um, is the one that's going to want to take all that time off, right? So in, mm -hmm. in my situation, I'm in a same-sex relationship. I will not be the one, whether I carry a child or not, I will not be the one that's wanting to take a big chunk of maternity leave, right? Mm -hmm. So finding a company that offers that flexibility will be really important for us. And then finally, I'd say inclusive healthcare. And this is something that actually I had to lobby pretty hard at McKinsey for. So whilst McKinsey do a lot of things very, very well, and I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to start my career there. Um, one thing that we realized they maybe didn't do so well is their healthcare coverage is very, very good. They look after the people that work for them very well. But that healthcare coverage fell down um, when it came to um, same sex relationships or that or trans colleagues, right? So mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. any coverage. So for example, fertility benefits, if you're in a, um, a heterosexual relationship and um, you were struggling with your fertility, you were covered by the healthcare. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're in a same sex relationship and you were obviously struggling with your fertility, there was no coverage mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you move in fertility, right? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm did a lot of work and once it was raised right McKinsey they were amazing getting like the most senior people involved in that decision process it was it was an uncomfortable process for me because I had to put myself out there I had she had to out myself as a gay woman to mm -hmm. the, the people in the business I maybe wasn't ready to out myself to I also mm -hmm. had to out the fact that I was thinking about becoming a mum soon right which is another mm -hmm. thing which straight people don't have to mm -hmm. do but but they did look at it really hard and it's now changed mm -hmm. the policy right and the, the same so we did a lot of lobbying around tra trans healthcare coverage as, as well, right? So um, I think those are the, the kind of three categories that I see kind of innovating and changing the most and are really mm -hmm. important to people. Uh -huh. But like you say, the softer stuff is also important, right? The non-formal benefits, the, is, are you creating real career opportunities for your people? Are you providing mentorship and sponsorship? Are you creating communities of like-minded people that come from the, the the same kind of underrepresented background. So you're creating a safe space for those people, right? Are you mm -hmm. really getting, you know, money where your mouth is, right? Around these initiatives to to change, right? And make mm -hmm. sure managers are inclusive and are creating fair opportunities for people. I think almost the softer stuff's a bit harder to do, um, mm -hmm. but it's just as, if not more important. I mean, uh, there's an interesting study from McKinsey, actually. Uh, they reported that stress increases when employees experience onlyness just being the only one in the workplace with their specific identity. Do you have any ideas, any specific advice or ideas or something maybe that you've experienced that worked really well in terms of cultivating an inclusive atmosphere, regardless of, of biases? Yeah, well, I, th I think the, the first one and the obvious one, right, is creating a diverse environment, right? Because mm -hmm. you have an environment by sorting out your hiring and your retention, 
um, then the inclusivity becomes a little bit easier because you're not talking about the only, right? There shouldn't, if you get mm -hmm. it right, yeah. there ever be a scenario where somebody's the only. Yeah. And I think an environment then when somebody is the only, a lot of that comes down to the inclusivity of the direct team, right? As opposed to the broader business. Of mm -hmm. course, like the team will reflect the broader business, but I think within the team, again, it comes back to that role of the manager, right? Is the manager really getting to know everyone on the team, really listening, really having empathy for their situation, making sure that they are delegating fairly, not always to the same people, right? Not always giving the person who's great at analytics, the analytical tasks and not understanding if they're wanting to actually have some presentation opportunities, um, opportunities to showcase to leadership. Um, yeah, encouraging situations where your team are talking openly about themselves and it's not always about the work. And mm -hmm. then advocating for that inclusive behavior, right? So mm -hmm. um, I always have kind of like daily check-ins with the whole team on a call, right? And if somebody has got to pick their kids up or they've got a healthcare appointment or they've got something going on is being advocating that, that flexible management style quite visibly um so what the other the teams see that actually you, you can act in this way right um mm -hmm. you know asking when little things like when you're asking people do you have a partner using gender neutral language right do you mm -hmm. have um asking people what their pronouns are if you've not worked with mm -hmm. them before right or mm -hmm. not comfortable asking them what their pronouns are um seeing how they refer to themselves right really paying attention mm -hmm. How do they refer to themselves? How do they refer to their partners? What pronouns do they use? Right. So you can at least kind of start to pick up on that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, again, a lot of it, a lot of it, the onus is on the manager, right? The manager's role is a hard role, um, but I think a lot of yeah. change will, will stem from that, right? So it's kind of responsibility to take. Yeah, yeah. And it and it's the manager's role is is to is to create that environment where, where people can um, continue to develop themselves and, and progress and where they have environment in which, which allows them, which facilitates their thriving and their delivery of results. And so these things are, are so important. And uh, yeah, it's interesting what you said. Um, it's so much easier not to have that experience of loneliness if you have diversity, as simple as that, right? And so again, going back to to quotas you you need those quotas because otherwise you you just can't this is the starting point right this is your measuring point this is your your point of uh of understanding what's going on and, and measuring any progress that you're making what metrics uh, have you seen organizations uh, using to assess the current state of uh dei uh, within their companies because we have the quotas is there anything else that they can assess uh, that they can use that you have seen for example, to understand whether there is inclusivity, whether, you know, whether there is psychological safety. Yeah, I mean, I mean, making sure you're baselining your starting point is probably one of the most important parts of any DNI policy, right? And if mm -hmm. a company says that they have DNI policy, but they don't have any metrics, I would question if they mm -hmm. have DNI policy at all, right? Because mm -hmm. do you know what people from less representative backgrounds are wanting, are needing, and how do you know if your policies are being effective if you're not tracking your metrics, right? So mm -hmm. there's some quite there's some quite easy metrics to track, right? Um, I think basically you've got your current state, right? So you've got essentially within your teams at different levels today, what is the what is the gender split? What representation do you do you have of, of certain backgrounds that you're tracking, right? So for example, McKinsey will know of its glam colleagues. So that's our LGBT group at McKinsey they'll know exactly where those people are at every level, right? So they can mm -hmm. look at look at the current state and say, mm -hmm. we've got we've got a lot of LGBT um, colleagues at, at the bottom levels, but very few at the top. I wonder why that mm -hmm. might be, right? Let's go and talk mm -hmm. about that EM mm -hmm. 
which is the level at which they're leaving and find out why right and that mm-hmm initiatives right or they might say again we've got look we've got a 50 for so mckinsey i think actually has a 60 40 split of, of women to men at the, the lower level at least they did the year that i left um but then at the top again it's it's like 80 percent men right so something's happening um so i think looking at your current state at different levels looking at that pipeline looking at promotions and what the splits are the representation is within that and using that to drive to identify your pain points and therefore drive the deep dives that will end up in the initiatives, right? That, that you will launch mm-hmm. and then we'll track again. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's that's a couple of things that you can do. And again, something that, I mean, McKinsey has a whole team, right? <laughs> doing this mm-hmm. stuff doing mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's all quantitative. So the qualitative is also important, right? So actually speaking to your people. So every year mm-hmm. maybe you would do an engagement survey that would ask everyone in the organization, um, how they felt about certain topics and give certain things an overall rating and write some real qualitative statements about how they feel. Um, and you could, if you felt comfortable, you could tick a box to say, am I female, male, non-binary? If I'm comfortable, am I part of the LGBT community? Am I part of the BAME community? Um, mm-hmm. They can then cut that data in different ways to say, actually, on the on the whole, we're scoring really well on these dimensions, but our LGBT, our GLAM community have dropped by like 50 percentage points from last year. So we really mm-hmm. need to go talk to that community and find out what's going on and what we need to do better right so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All, as, as you'd expect from McKinsey all very data informed um mm-hmm. but because I actually had a leadership position within GLAM in, in the London office for me that was so helpful right because I could then work out where our pain points were within a certain year and be a lot more targeted and in what I was doing and what my focus was for the next 12 months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of yourself, what was the uh, most impactful or most important uh, DEI project you have worked on or have been involved with in? Um, well, one would be the kind of lobbying for the healthcare inclusion at McKinsey. Mm-hmm. That was probably the biggest win. Um, and the mm-hmm. other one would be starting um, a group called PRISM at McKinsey, which is their first socioeconomic um, kind of diversity group. Mm-hmm. So we started that group because we realized there was very few people like me. And of course, I had other colleagues, but when we kind of bonded mm-hmm. over that um, and decided we needed to be better. So mm-hmm. we launched PRISM, which has started to look at McKinsey's performance and socioeconomic um, diversity in its recruitment and its retention and understand our pain points and launch initiatives to make that better. Right. So we started doing things like a university challenge where we went to kind of 15 underrepresented universities, found students from less privileged backgrounds invited them into the office they competed in a business challenge and they got kind of springboarded through to the kind of interview stage um of the recruitment process right so Mm -hmm. that then meant that we had this pipeline of students that didn't come from oxbridge who hadn't been privately educated kind of coming coming in right and there was Mm -hmm. other initiatives that we did as well but um yeah so that's now one of the biggest um kind of networks at at mckinsey now now i've left and i'm super proud of that yeah fantastic so to promote diversity in your function and in the industrial environment in general why should women take on uh, mergers and acquisitions role and why should they join uh, industrial companies uh, what what do you like most about your role what can how can we promote you know your current role to kind of encourage more women to to progress uh, follow your footsteps and and follow similar career path yeah well i start i'll start with the industrials right so the sector mm-hmm. I think the reason I was so interested in in the sector and why I'm still so interested in it is because it is a heavier, more traditional industry. It's much harder to change, right? With a tech mm-hmm. industry, um, you haven't got the tangible, you haven't got heavy equipment, you haven't got hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition 
um, and kind of the, the average age of, of the industry, I think, is, is much older as well, which means the change is much harder, but those problems are so much more interesting from my perspective, right? So essentially, how do you um, how do you decarbonize the steel and cement sectors, right? Like a really hard project, and I'm not technical at all, right? So I think to a, the average non-technical person, they'd just be like, Jesus, I've got no idea. I have no idea. Um, but it's really, I think, actually something that, that women can be really good at is the collaboration, the listening, the pulling together multiple views, the understanding of uh, different stakeholders and, and different dimension aspects of what's going on. So so my role where I add value is I speak to a lot of the technical experts. I don't mm-hmm. know myself, but I understand where the risks are, where the opportunities are. I can look at the data uh, and I can communicate that in a way that the, the business leaders, the decision makers kind of know right so to me the scale of the challenges and the scale of the opportunity in industrials is why this industry is so great um Mm -hmm. so that's probably the sector um and also right it's all well and good being in if if you are kind of pro uh the green movement decarbonization and avoiding climate change lots of industries it's great being in them right but the one that's going to drive the difference is industrials right this is where you need Mm -hmm. to um so why, and another reason that makes me kind of feel good every day, kind of waking up and coming to work to, to do what I do. Um, and That's then- so true, because uh, as an individual, um, I mean, your power is a little bit limited. Your impact is a little bit limited, right? And uh, But as an individual with an organization that has so much more influence and impact on where the decarbonization uh, agenda goes, you can have so much more impact yourself, right? Be- being part of uh, that solution, uh, finding new solutions to these challenges. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because and then M&A, right? Mm-hmm. On top of that is you're essentially deciding where the flow of funds is going, right? Which businesses are being invested in and having an opportunity to grow and have that bigger impact on society. So, mm-hmm. for example, we we invest in, in companies that are um, developing green hydrogen, right? And mm-hmm. otherwise, without that investment, these companies wouldn't go anywhere, right? We're investing mm-hmm. in companies that um, capture the carbon that's produced by the fermentation process, right? And then reuse that carbon as part of the carbonation process in drinks. Um, mm-hmm. clo- we're closing the loop, right? In industry mm-hmm. or otherwise producing a lot of greenhouse damaging emissions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's also a really cool thing to be involved mm-hmm. in. I think with, with M&A, it's, it's the impact that you're having via economics right but also Mm -hmm. the varied nature of you you get to you work with different people all the time you're exposed Mm -hmm. to different sectors you're always learning something and it never gets boring right so I think Mm -hmm. that's why I I really love being an M&A. What advice would you give to your younger self at the beginning of your career journey or maybe even before when you when you were first joining the university which was kind of first uh, experience of uh, you know um, divert where you had to find yourself kind of in a new environment, what would that advice be? Probably just, you know, be comfortable that you are adding value in your own way. Mm-hmm. Don't constantly stress that you're maybe not adding value immediately or as quickly or as visibly, right, as other people, mm-hmm. um, especially your younger male colleagues, right, who probably will shout a little louder and make you mm-hmm. feel pure because you're not mm-hmm. shouting quite as loud, mm-hmm. um, is believe that you are adding value because otherwise you wouldn't be there, right? Like mm-hmm. processes, especially in these big corporations and at, university prestigious universities like university of exeter right they don't make mistakes right if mm-hmm. you that university if you get hired by that company you are there mm-hmm. for a reason you're there because you can add value so believe mm-hmm. you're gonna add that value and also mm-hmm. understand that some of the responsibility of you adding value is on that company getting the best out of you right so mm-hmm. i'd spent a lot of years feeling very very insecure and very stressed mm-hmm. and massive imposter syndrome um mm-hmm. that i think could have been avoided had i not have known that 
but then I'm also mm-hmm. the like it definitely instilled a very good work ethic in me that is mm-hmm. as far as I've come right so mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think I just would have enjoyed those years a little bit more had I known that Thank you very much for all your advice. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, it's been a really, really interesting uh, story. And uh, the projects that you have created are uh, so important. And um, just even having, putting yourself out there, as you said, it's not so easy to talk about your personal things when nobody else is talking. So, but you're making a massive difference by doing this because you are the first one, then you're creating a movement and a change within one organization and then others with you. So it is so important. Um, so thank you very much for sharing the story. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's always, always good to talk about these topics. So I'm glad to see there's people like you getting more stories out there. That's it for this month's Ways Women Lead episode. But there is plenty more insightful and actionable advice from where this podcast came from. Check out our website on www.6-group.com if you'd like to know more about how to build and develop diverse, inclusive and effective leadership teams and how to progress your career as a leader. See you next time.